Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. What's up, fam? This is Jay, letting you know that Push Black has a new podcast called State of Criminal Justice. Every week, State of Criminal Justice digs into the most important events happening right now in the legal system. Listen, the future of our community depends on us understanding how injustice systematically operates in this country. State of Criminal Justice is here to ensure you're always up to date on how institutional racism is impacting Black people nationwide. State of Criminal Justice is produced by Push Black. You can catch it on our Push Black YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for the support. Peace. There is always this veneer, this layer that Black men should be the leaders of the movement and Black men are going to redeem Africa and America and the diaspora and Black women should step back. That shifts in the 1960s. And despite this kind of masculine bravada and beginnings, Black women fundamentally transformed the Black Panther Party. And they did this by taking this idea of the revolutionary and making a female version of it. history that's presented to us often highlights Black men leading the movements towards liberation. The Fredericks, the Patrices, the Martins, the Malcolms, and Kwamis. These are the names we hear, but if we've learned anything about the history we're taught, we know a lot of times we're only getting half the story. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. So there are two facets that are often ignored in the history of our movements. One, our movements have always been a result of collective action, not just one person with an idea. And two, this action was often carried out by Black women. Black women don't often get their roses in the history books. And even today, that's shaped the way we perceive certain movements and the ways Black women shape those movements. So for us to achieve liberation as a people today, we must understand these facts. We need collective action from everyone in our community so everyone can one day reap the rewards of liberation. Today's guest will set the record straight about the powerful ways Black women influenced revolutionary actions. Dr. Ashley Farmer is an accomplished historian and author of the pioneering book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. And coming soon, Dr. Farmer will release a biography about one of the most influential yet scarcely known black thinkers of her day, Queen Mother Audley Moore. Before we kick off this important conversation, we'll hear the powerful story of Carlotta. Carlotta paused and held her breath. The sounds of nature were always present. The branches scratching, twigs snapping, the constant nighttime hum of the cicadas. But she had to tread lightly. She had to be careful. Her co-conspirator for Mina had been discovered, beaten, and imprisoned. And if she was discovered organizing 
one of the largest rebellions of the enslaved in Cuba's history, she wouldn't get off that easily. Carlotta had been kidnapped from West Africa as a child, and after enduring the grueling Middle Passage, had been forced to work on a sugar plantation throughout the 1800s. But unlike many who had been born into enslavement, she remembered her childhood, her family, and the taste of freedom. On November 3rd, 1843, it began. She'd coordinated the enslaved on other plantations via the use of a talking drum, and they struck all at once. Brandishing a machete, she first broke into the building that held her partner, Fermina, and a dozen other enslaved Africans. Then she burned it down, as well as the plantation's torture house. She killed the overseer's daughter and forced the plantation's owner to flee. Now fully armed, she and her followers went from plantation to plantation, killing as many enslavers as they could. By the end of the two-day rebellion, they destroyed five sugar plantations, as well as coffee and cattle farms, a powerful and expensive blow to the economic system. Carlotta and Fermina were eventually captured, tortured, and killed. The following year, Cuban enslavers went on a brutal reign of terror to prevent any liberatory ideas in the enslaved who remained. But it was too late. The seed was planted. And though it took decades, freedom eventually won. Unfortunately, history primarily focused on the men involved in the rebellion and men in revolutionary movements in general. And while the work those men put in matters, no movement for freedom has ever succeeded without the powerful role of women freedom fighters. And Carlotta is just one example among many. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr. Farmer, what does Black liberation look like to you? I think Black liberation looks like the freedom to move and be and experience oneself unbridled um, by white supremacy. So what do I mean by that? I mean, that means no more kind of state surveillance, this constant tracking and criminalizing of Black people. I mean, no people trying to have to you know, kind of represent the race, not being the first, the only, the one that has to kind of put things on the map for Black people, the ability to make choices that are not defined by or circumscribed by white supremacy, or also just truthfully in this particular moment, the ability to rest, the ability to put things down, to be a person that takes up interest or sits still without that being a commentary on the race writ large. So it really is kind of that that kind of unencumbered joy and movement. And by movement, I mean both physical movement, but also kind of spiritual, physical and intellectual movement. How does your work contribute towards getting our folks to that vision of Black liberation? My book, Remaking Black Power, is kind of a cultural and intellectual history of women in the Black Power movement. And so it charts the rise and fall of the Black Power movement. So I'm talking about the 1950s through the 1980s. And it talks about how Black people thought about Black Power. And when I'm saying Black Power, I mean kind of three simple things. Self-determination, community control, 
and self-defense. So that self-determination part in particular is key. And what I mean by that is your ability to determine your own destiny. And that may be everything from who controls your community to who controls or what kind of control you have over your own body. The community control aspect, you know, is pretty self-evident, right? It just means that you don't want white people controlling things that only Black people are experiencing. And then self-defense can mean, you know, when we think of it most of the time, we think of self-defense in terms of armed self-defense. Um, but what I talk about in the book a lot are all the different ways Black women defend themselves. And by defending themselves, I mean their intellect. By defending themselves, I mean their actual body. And defending themselves, meaning their actual dignity as well. So um, what it's showing us are all the different ways that Black women engage in this project of self-defense, self-determination, and community control. And one of the things that I think comes forward in the book that is important for people to remember is that liberation looks different for differently gendered people. There isn't one Black person or one Black type in the world. And so when we're thinking about liberation, we have to think about it in a very kind of holistic or complete fashion. We don't mean liberation for some Black people and not other Black people, we mean it for everybody. And that means we have to document what that looks like for everybody. So my book documents what that looks like for Black women. Why was it important for you to make sure that that history is documented? You know, one of the things that I think is tough about Black history is that we love to recognize first and we love to recognize triumphant heroes. And I don't want to take anything away from that, right? I mean, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, all great, wonderful, brave, courageous people. But the reality is this, twofold. One, they didn't come up in a vacuum, right? They didn't, um, you know, it wasn't like they just woke up and they were destined to be these people. They were made and supported and held up and propped up and then sometimes saved by a larger activist community. And also it was because they were studied people of struggle, because they had really good analyses of what was going on in terms of what's racism, what's capitalism, what's white supremacy, how is it operating in my day-to-day life? They had the courage to stand up and do these kind of first or major things that we talk about. But when you are a Black person just existing every day, that level of putting one's life on the line, that level of courage sometimes seems unattainable and insurmountable right? Um, It seems as though that person is otherworldly. But when we document daily people, people that are your moms, your sisters, your aunties, right? Your cousins doing this kind of work, ones that we haven't kind of, you know, made icons, you start to see how everyday people took a look around them, said, you know what? This is not right. Let me try to move in a way that moves towards the world I want to see and affect change, right? And it's really hard to connect with the Roses and the Malcolms and the Martins because we've we've made them so triumphant. But it's much easier to connect with the girl from your block in Baltimore that said, I'm going to go join the Black Panther Party or I'm going to go join, you know, a cultural nationalist group. So I think it's important to document the everyday people that just tried to make a dent and move the needle as much as those icons, because I think that makes history more accessible. And that makes you feel like you, too, can say hey, something's not right. I have the ability to join an organization. I have the ability to join a protest and try to change the world in the way that I think I want it to be. There seems to be an alternative narrative for Black women's involvement in the Black Power movement, and this sort of challenges that. How did you come to do this work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so just to kind of give folks a primer, the conventional narrative about Black power is, is that it was really an interpretation of resuscitating and reclaiming Black manhood, and that Black women were seen not only as bystanders in it, but those who took on kind of public leadership roles or thinking roles were seen as kind of antithetical to the project of Black liberation. Um, and you can think about how this might come about from um, looking at, say, something like the Panther Party, right, with that kind of very Black male, come bring, restore your Black manhood, come, you know, defend your community, et cetera. So I obviously knew as a historian of Black women's history that this hadn't could only be part of the story, right? Um, we all know that Black women don't just sit down and take whatever sexism comes their way. So why would it be any different in Black power? 
So I started to talk to Black women who were in some of the organizations I talk about in the book. Because, you know, this was the 60s and 70s. A lot of them are still around and a lot of them are still very active. Um, And I asked them, you know, what was their experience with sexism? Um, How did they navigate these ideas that Black power equaled a resuscitation or rehabilitation of Black manhood? And they told me two things. One, sometimes it was really bad and they left. A lot of the times, more often though, they were challenging it directly within their organizations. And they were challenging it two ways. One was through just the day-to-day kind of standing up in meetings and saying, no, we're not taking this. But two was through what we would call kind of their intellectual production. And by that, I mean, you know, they were writing about articles about it, drawing images about it, um, putting out treatises about it and saying, you know, if you're going to talk of this big game about Black liberation and about a future unencumbered by white supremacy, you can't say you want to get rid of capitalism. You can't say you want to get rid of racism, but leave sexism intact. So they were the ones, these women that I interviewed, who really showed me where they were doing that on a day-to-day basis through their intellectual production. And the book really kind of captures that. Did you go in with any expectations about what you would find? Did something tip you off that you may, you know, reveal what you what your book ended up being? Well, yeah. So I thought um, I would write more about them creating kind of their own separate organizations. I thought that going into it, they would say, you know, it was too much. So we created this Black Women Collective. We created that Black Women Collective. And certainly that I don't want to give the impression that that never happened. But what I learned is that far more often they found Black power as like an organizing principle that, again, that community control, self-determination, self-defense part and the organizations that they were a part of, like the Panther Party or the Congress for African Peoples or many of the other organizations I talk about, to be places where they could organize and still combat sexism. They found that to be more productive than creating their own organizations most of the time. And so that was really what made a pivot for me. And so if you think about it in terms of, you know, what would be considered a male-led movement, you've got three options. You can just totally acquiesce to the sexism. You can fight it from within the organization, or you can make it own separate organization. And the book really counts um, or talks about all those women who tried to fight it from within those organizations. And by fighting it, I want to be clear, they're not necessarily fighting the Black men themselves, but what they're fighting is this idea that liberation doesn't include Black women. And they're trying to push their male counterparts to be more expansive in their understandings of how liberation looks for all Black people, not just Black men. So what has been the reception to your work since it's been out? It has been mostly positive. You know, I think if you pick up the book, you get a couple of things. You get just a basic history of the Black power movement. You know how the K-12 education system works? It's like, you know, there was Rosa, there was Martin, and then we're done, right? Um, And Malcolm, Mm -hmm. if we talk about Malcolm X, he was mean and he was violent. If we talk about the Panthers, they were mean and they were violent, right? We never really get the full story of just what Black power meant to people and all the different ways they expressed it. So that's one thing that, you know, we just really need to kind of reckon with is that we got to talk about why we never talk about that. And the book just explains why Black power was an attractive option for Black people at this time. It attracted millions of people, right? It wasn't a flash in the plan movement. Like I said, if you get any kind of Black Power history, you might get Malcolm. The book offers a far more kind of expansive understanding of it. It talks about women in the 1950s and 60s, cultural workers, artists that express Black Power. It talks about people who were cultural nationalists. And by that, I mean those who changed their names, hairstyles, and kind of tried to reorient themselves around kind of an African understanding of the world. It talks about what I call Black Power feminists, or women who tried to incorporate Black Power principles, like the Third World Women's Alliance. So you really do get a broad swath of the different ways that people interpreted self-defense, community control, and self-determination. Overall, the reception has been good. A lot of the activists that I interviewed, I interviewed about 30 activists for the book, have shared that they appreciated the attention to all the different ways that they were activists and all their different ways in which they contributed to these groups. It seems that this is adding an important element to this conversation and this history. So thank you for doing the work. Now I would like to dive into the different ideologies that you explore in the book. So you start off with the concept of the militant Negro domestic, and you start off talking about Queen Mother Moore. Can you 
help us understand this concept of the militant Negro domestic and Queen Mother Moore's connection to that? Yeah. So before 1965, if you were a Black woman in America, you were most likely a domestic worker or had engaged in domestic work. Before the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act, it was very difficult to find work, even if you had an education. Maybe you might be a teacher. But there was pretty much no Black woman that at some point didn't have to do domestic work to make ends meet. What do I mean by domestic work? I mean that you were bought often for a day, maybe a long-term contract, but usually for a day, to clean white women's homes or take care of their children or help them set up for parties, right? Basically to be their housekeeper. And so what I'm trying to do there is show that there is no way that any Black woman didn't have an experience with this and that this experience between 1900 and about 1950, which we would say kind of laid the basis for Black power movement as we know it of the 60s and 70s, while they were in that position, that made them, that politicized them. And we start to see examples of how through by the brat-breaking work of cleaning white women's homes, what going through what they often call the slave markets, where Black women would line up for a day on the street corners. This most often happened in New York, but not exclusively in New York. And women would come and buy them for a day and they would test out their knees and test out their muscles, right? This, this experience, this shared experience, politicized Black women and made them think about how they wanted to have self-determination how they wanted to be able to control their community so these kind of slave markets didn't happen, how they wanted to be able to defend themselves and their dignity for that. Um, so I use that kind of framework as a way to talk about how Black women laid the groundwork for what we now know as the Black Power Movement. During the 1940s and 50s, we start to see an uptick of Black women writing about the experience of being a Black domestic and how it's connected to ideas like self-determination. And also trying to make sure they understand that just because Black women were not seen as, quote, learned or educated because they were domestic workers doesn't mean that they didn't feel a connection to the diaspora and they didn't understand that Black women were in similar positions all over the world, right, in colonized positions. Um, so what you read in that chapter are, for example, satire by a woman named Alice Childress with a character called Mildred. Mildred is a domestic worker. Every day she goes to work and battles it out with her white employer. Then she comes back and she tells the story to her other domestic worker, Marge. And through that satire, we see Black women as thinking about African liberation, about community control, about the importance of Black history, about the importance of self-determination. So that's one of the ways in which I talk about how the experience of being a Black domestic worker kind of catalyzed these ideas that we now know as Black power. And for Queen Mother Moore, Queen Mother Moore, for those um, who don't know, was a activist, a Black nationalist activist that lived from 1898 to 1997. She's actually the subject of my next book. And she was a domestic worker for many, many years, both in New Orleans and when she tried to migrate more to New York. And she often used these experiences to talk about why she thought that ideas of Black nationalism and Black power were important. They politicized her. They showed her a, a critique of capitalism. They showed her a critique of racism. They showed her how sexual and racial politics work. So that's why I start that way. I want to understand, I want people to understand that Black power didn't come out of nowhere all of a sudden in 1966 when Stokely Carmichael exclaimed it, but rather that people have been thinking about these ideas for a long time. And that one of the main conduits through which people became politicized, particularly Black women, was through their domestic work. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st.
Toyota, let's go places. With this concept of the militant Negro domestic, you described a situation that, from what I'm understanding, is the precursor to what we know as the Black Power Movement, but it's not necessarily described in the similar vein as, I think, the rest of these scenarios in your book. It doesn't seem to have the same sort of challenging sexism aspect. When I talk about challenging sexism in the earlier period, they're trying to basically defend their honor largely against white men who harass them as they are um, navigating white women's homes as the domestic help. It, there is always this veneer, this layer that Black men should be the leaders of the movement and Black men are going to redeem Africa and America and the diaspora. But you're correct that the kind of attention to that shifts in the 1960s. And just to share a little bit about why that is, in 1965, a government report was released called what we call the Moynihan Report now. It's named after Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was ostensibly a liberal um, politician that was trying to figure out why, after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65, Black people still weren't making the gains they needed to. And what he came up with in this report was that Black women, female-headed households were a key part of the reason that Black people could not get ahead. And we can talk about all the different reasons why this is, is both incorrect, right? I mean, Black people don't have female-headed households at disproportionately higher rates than white people or any other people, but also that um, you would try to pin an ongoing centuries-long systemic racism on a different family structure and a family structure that has been largely caused, right, and promoted by white supremacy um, is extremely problematic. But nonetheless, despite the fact that this was a problematic discourse, many Black men in the 1960s picked this up as an example of why they needed to be the leaders of organizations and be the leaders of the movement and Black women should step back. And so when we see that report come out, and we see some of the black men, and these are, you know, well, excuse me, well-known black men that we know and love, you know, that I think now or later in life would realize kind of their, the problems with them adopting this rhetoric so quickly. But nonetheless, at the time they did, when they start really adopting that, then you have to see black women push back on a different level than they did, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s. So they were having these experiences in their working environments, becoming politicized, and then when they start hearing this rhetoric that is coming from the Moynihan Report and the ideas that came around that, automatically they know based on their experiences that this isn't how things should be going. Am I understanding that sort of trajectory? Yeah, and I mean, and if you think that about it really, right, these are white people, I mean, you know, Dana Patrick Moynihan is a white man, telling you that the problems that you're facing as a Black people, which we know are systemic and deep-rooted, are now being put on individual Black people, particularly Black women. And he's arguing for the fact that there's not, he says there's not, right? Again, this is not factual. You know, a man, woman, and 2.5 children, kind of this heteronormative household, that this is the reason Black people can't get ahead. We all know, one, like I said, that's not entirely true, that white people don't have these same issues. But two, that that's not a real answer, right, <laughs> for, the, for slavery, Jim Crow, racism, housing employment, job employment discrimination, all these kinds of things. So, you know, it was an interesting moment when Black men adopted this rhetoric because in any other context, as many of the women in my book point out, they would critique this, right, as, as an example of trying to make an, a systemic problem an individual problem. But for some reason in this particular moment, they, they were kind of turned a blind eye to that analysis and instead kind of adopted it full stop. And so Black women had always had this kind of layer of sexism to fight. I don't want to give the impression sexism popped up in the 1960s, but it was renewed vigor because of the Moynihan Report that they had to fight this sexism. Okay, so let's move on to the 60s where your chapter on the Black revolutionary woman. What did that look like? Yeah, so the Black Revolutionary Woman chronicles the Black Panther Party, which, you know, we all know and love. And what it's trying to share with you there is that despite this idea that if you think about the Black Panthers, I'm sure you think about Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, right, in a black beret, a leather jacket, and a gun, that despite this kind of masculine bravada and beginnings, 
that Black women fundamentally transformed the Black Panther Party. And they did this by taking this idea of the revolutionary, right? You think about Fred Hampton, I am a revolutionary, and making a female version of it. So how did they do this? We've, a lot of people have seen the artwork that um, is from the Black Panther Party newspaper. There were several Black women artists, and they purposely drew Black women without any Black men around them as this kind of revolutionary figure. So I talk about those Black women artists. They also openly debated the role of Black women in revolution in the Panther Party newspaper. And I would argue to you that even if you never laid your eyes on the Panther, the Panther Party newspaper had worldwide circulation. So their ideas that a woman could be a revolutionary and like what, what a Black revolutionary woman entailed were reaching literally across the globe. And my argument there, too, is that part of this is how they navigated and pushed their male counterparts to be more accepting. So, you know, at one point it was very kind of, you know, Moynihan report masculine based. But over the course of the life of the Black Panther Party from the 1960s to the 1980s, we see major figures like Huey Newton, like Eldridge Cleaver, shift their stance on the importance of women. And also, more importantly, not just that women should be included but also that no lib part idea of Black liberation is complete without their gendered versions of revolution and liberation. Um, so, you know, by the end of that chapter, I hope you see how interest, all the interesting ways in which Black women imagine themselves as revolutionaries, as members of the Panther Party. But I also hope you see that, like, historical actors can change their minds, right? We often put people in one category. I kind of call this, when I talk to my students, I'm like, you know, you weren't born woke, Right. You, you, you change over time with new ideas. So we see the way that Black women pushed these leaders that we often know and love to change their ideas and understand that they were limited. Um, so it's both a commentary on, you know, the role of Black women in the Panther Party, but also a commentary on the fact that, like, people and ideas can change over time if people keep pushing. So I'd like to understand more some of the ways that these women shaped the party and shaped their role in the party. You talk about art, you talk about writings in your book. Can you dig a little into each of those? The Panthers really understood the power of an image, right? The power of drawing something of Black people literally engaging in community control, engaging in self-defense, engaging in self-determination. And Huey Newton often said that, you know, the ideology or the politics gives us the correct like understanding, but the art is really how we express it and kind of get the message out. He also pointed out that, you know, Black people had lower literacy rates through no fault of their own, but because of a racist school system. So art and kind of images is a really good way to convey your message succinctly. So if you were a female Black Panther artist, you might draw a Black woman in knee-high boots a black leather jacket, a black beret holding a gun, right? That says to the to the viewer, black women can engage in armed self-defense just as much as a black man. Or when the Panthers um, started to expand their work to include what we now call survival programs, and by this I mean the free breakfast program a lot of people know about, free food program, free ambulance program, they really did create a social safety net. But they black women artists in the Panther Party centered black women in that art, right? So if you picked up the newspaper, you might see an older woman or a younger woman engaging in the Panthers programs, whether that's the free food program, the free shoot program, et cetera. So what does that tell the viewer? That says that black women are part of the survival programs. That says the black women are part of the Black Panther Party. And that, that these black women are aligning themselves with a set of politics that are aligned with Black power. And so through all of these kinds of images, they're really shifting who they think of when they think of who is a panther and who they think of when they think of who is an activist and who they think of when they think of who is a leader, right? And that, you know, does something to the psyche, that does something to the readership, and that makes people who think maybe this isn't for me or maybe women aren't involved in this reconsider. So it's a really powerful way of getting your point across, even though it doesn't seem as such on kind of face value. Do you know of the effectiveness of this? So I understand that they created this art. They put these images out there. How did that impact the audience they were trying to reach? How did it impact membership for the Panthers? 
What most people don't know is that by 1970, the Panther Party started in 1966. By 1970, the estimates are that it, the rank and file, so not the top, you know, couple of, um, you know, offices, but the everyday people that lived and worked in chapters across the country, which there were about 40 of, were women. And, and sometimes women started Black Panther chapters, including in Des Moines, Iowa, and in New Haven, and in Boston. And so you see that they don't see this as a place that is anti-woman, but a place that is inclusive of them, and that it's a place where Black women can organize and work and affect change for the Black community. That only happens if you feel like there's, there's literally, and also kind of through images or imagistically, a space for you. Um, so I do think that what we would call their intellectual production or their artistic production really said, you know, come on, women, you can do this. And then by the end of the Black Panther Party, by the 1970s, they were running it completely. Now, some of this had to do with the fact that the federal government targeted Black men specifically. But some of this also had to do with the fact that they had shown themselves to be effective leaders. So we had women like Kathleen Cleaver that were, you know, part of the Central Committee. We had women like Elaine Brown, who were ended up running the entire organization in the 1970s. We had women like Erica Huggins, who ran the entire newspaper. And again, you'll remind, I'll remind you that I argue that the newspaper was probably its most influential thing because it touched people even in places where there was no Black Panther Party. So, you know, it really transformed from a kind of small group of Black men defending people against police brutality in Oakland to a national and an international organization that really saw Black women as leaders, as defenders of their community, and um, as able organizers and revolutionaries. And we don't get that part if we only think about, you know, just the images or kind of the Hollywood version of Black Power, the Black Panthers that we see. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You mentioned chapters that were founded by women specifically. Is there any evidence of how they may have operated differently because of that? Yeah, you know, so again, I don't want to give the impression that sexism or issues of discrimination did not exist, right? The Black Panthers weren't in a vacuum. This was the 1960s, right? Sexism was everywhere, just as it is today. But what I'm suggesting to you through the book is that the Panthers offered a space where they were at least confronting and dealing with it straight on, and that offered Black women ways to take on these positions in spaces where they weren't getting that, sometimes even in the civil rights movement. So the, the experience of Black women by and large, you know, varied by chapter. There were certainly ones that were more conservative, where men were more sexist. And there were ones, like I said, like Boston or Des Moines or Chicago under Fred Hampton, that were fairly egalitarian, where Black women held high-ranking positions. So it certainly varied. But what I will say is that the official policy about Black women and women's liberation that folks like Huey Newton and Bobby Seale put out shifted over time because of Black women's involvement in the Black Panther Party. So in the beginning, when they're founding the party in 1966, there's no real mention of women. By 1969, they're actively arguing, meaning men that are heading the organization, that no liberation can exist without Black women being included in it. And they are actively arguing that Black women are revolutionaries. So we see it both on this kind of day-to-day -day level of the chapters, but we also see the way the main leaders of the organization are shifting and trying to get their own rank and file to shift to be more supportive and inclusive of Black women. And that's a result of this intellectual production and just the day-to-day -day engagement with these ideas that the mm -hmm. women were bringing to the table. Absolutely. Right. So yeah, it's a combination. We all know that Black women were organizing, right? Um, but it's a different level to say, here's all the ways in which they were engaging in this kind of work. And, and thinking about liberation with their with their ideas in mind. And that's really what a focus on intellectual production does for us, right? It's not just that Huey Newton was putting out doctrine and Black women were blindly following it, but they were challenging him and pushing and shaping doctrine in the process. Do you know of any comparable 
organizations or circumstances in terms of women's involvement on the civil rights side of things? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, again, like I said, no, no group of any sort was was existing outside the larger understanding, societal understandings of racism and sexism and classism. Um, certainly something like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, which incidentally created the original Black Panther Party that Huey Newton and Bobby Seale copied, tried very hard to keep gender politics in mind, but it was an interracial organization at first. And there were real questions about what Black women were allowed to do and white women were allowed to do. But Black women, and to some extent white women in that organization, did take on leadership roles such as being a field secretary, where they went door to door and asked people to register to vote. Or um, Ruby Doris Smith Robinson, a phenomenal organizer, ran kind of the Atlanta hub that sent all these people out to different parts of the South to organize. So I don't want to give the sense that, you know, Black women weren't pushing back across the board. What I'm suggesting to you is, is that in a, in a, in a period and within organizations which are unilaterally known to be male-dominated and sexist, that this just fundamentally was not the case. And the reason why it was not the case is because Black women were doing all the things that I just explained. We just haven't documented that. And so I wanted to make sure that we had an historical record of Black women, particularly in Black power, those who thought more radically than the civil rights movement, still organizing and being a part of these organizations, but also pushing these organizations to be more gender inclusive. So you have a chapter on the African woman. How did Black women reimagine their roles in cultural nationalist spaces? Yeah, so cultural nationalism um, is less well known. So let me just explain first what I mean by that. In its most basic sense, and cultural nationalism, again, has existed for beyond just um, the moment of the Black power movement. It, the idea is that Black people are under kind of a cultural brainwashing by white supremacy. Uh, cultural nationalists would point out that Jesus is white, that Santa Claus is white, that people straighten their hair, right? That they have no connection to their Black past. And their argument is is that you've got to reclaim your Black culture as a prerequisite or a foundation for engaging in political activity. So the idea here is that you need kind of a cultural revolution where you reframe your, your relationship to all things culturally related and that that become, makes you become a person ready to fight politically. So again, everybody's goal is the same, but you should just think of cultural nationalism as a different path towards the same goal of Black liberation. Now, that has existed far and wide since the days of slavery. However, in the 1960s and 70s, a particular version of cultural nationalism called Kawaida, K-A-W-A-I-D-A, developed. This was created by Mulana Karenga, Dr. Mulana Karenga, who is still with us and teaches at the University um, of California at Los Angeles at UCLA. And the goal here was to create a set of principles based not in whiteness and Americanness, but in an African value system um, in the hopes of realigning Black people with their past from Africa and getting them to be uninvested in white ideas of culture and food and hair and dress and drink and everything else that you might need. And they paired this kind of cultural revolution with protest, right? I don't want to give the sense that it's not politically engaged at all. But it was a way of saying, this is our compass through which we start to talk about politics. So most people have encountered Kawaida and cultural nationalism through Kwanzaa. Milana Karenga created Kwanzaa, the something that we still celebrate today. So when they created Kawaida, they tried to mimic what they believe to be pre-colonial African society. So meaning African societies before the rise of slavery, and before the infiltration of white supremacy. And embedded in this idea of pre-colonial African society was a very specific role for women and a very specific role for men. We can guess what those roles are, right? Men were the defenders, protectors, leaders. Women were the educators, child rearers, mothers, right? And this is not entirely true based on historical accuracy. And also it collapses a lot of different understandings of African societies and cultures into one thing, right? No, no African society, ethnic group, um, city, et cetera, worked exactly the same way. So to try to put it all in one, one kind of bag is not correct. But nevertheless, despite that fact, 
it was extraordinarily popular during the Black Power movement, right? You've seen people with Afros, you've seen people with Daishikis, you've seen people change their names, you've seen people worship different gods, right? This was all part of cultural nationalism. And it spoke to people because it offered an alternative to a white culture that tells you that you basically are trash all the time. So you can see why even if it wasn't entirely historically accurate, it, it performed a function for Black people. So Black women were, were, were attracted to cultural nationalism in droves, just as they were attracted to, you know, the Black Panther Party or other groups. And they joined groups like Ron Karenga's US organization, and also the poet Marie, Amiri Baraka, who many people may know, also became a Kawaiitist, um, and created a whole other group in, New, in Newark, New Jersey. There were groups in New York, there were groups in Atlanta that all followed this idea of cultural nationalism, and specifically Kawaiita. And as they joined the organization, much like the Panther Party, they pushed back against this idea that there were only certain roles Black women performed in pre-colonial African societies. So therefore, their roles in American society should not be limited as well. And so what has what happened often with Kawaiian and cultural nationalism, it is considered often the most conservative or most patriarchal kind of version and ideology that came up in the Black Power movement. But what my book shows is that they decided that they were going to be these kind of African women. They were going to go back and reclaim this history, but they were also not going to be tied to their male counterparts' understandings of what women should be and what women should do. They, like women in the Panther Party, said, if you really want to envision full cultural you know, freedom, if you really want to envision full Black liberation, you've got to divest yourselves from these kind of gender roles, and we got to work as a community together. So that chapter really documents the fact that Black women were part of cultural nationalist organizations and how they pushed back against what we would consider the most conservative elements of Black power and made the group more equitable. So what were the responses to these efforts from inside the organization? So I will tell you that with Kawaiitis, cultural nationalists, it was certainly um, not as easy as it was, say, with the Black Panther Party. Um, again, because many of the male leaders relied on this idea of pre-colonial African gender roles as the way these things should be. Nevertheless, what they would start to do is they would start, the women in cultural nationalist organizations would start to do, would be to start by saying, if we were in a free society, Maybe we could operate the way you want it to. But we all agree that we're not in a free society. So you're taking out basically half of your people power by relegating Black women to behind the scenes and not on the front lines. We've got to move in the direction of kind of a holistic way of organizing where we use everybody and everybody's a leader and everybody's an organizer. And then maybe if we get to the other side, we can talk about kind of recreating these roles again. So you see how they were a little bit more stealth with it, as it were, trying to just navigate in that way. Um, and, and they were successful. So um, Milana Karenga, again, who I told you, created the Kawaita Doctrine in 1965. By 1971, he was publishing articles that said that he was incorrect about his assessment of women's roles in cultural nationalism. Same with Amiri Baraka, I would argue, who's the other biggest kind of male figure in Kawaitan cultural nationalism. He too shifted his thinking. And he says, if you read, say, for example, his autobiography, that women fought him tooth and nail every day. They never got rid or kind of divested themselves from the idea that cultural nationalism was right. They were deeply invested in the ideas of Kawaita, but they said, it's gotta be a more expansive interpretation of what society looks like and what liberation looks like. So they were successful, but we don't see them in as many leadership positions as we do, say, in the Black Panther Party. But they started at a different point. All right. So you also talk about the Pan-African woman. Can you describe for our audience what that looked like? Yeah. So even though we often think about Black power as a U.S. phenomenon, I don't want anybody to leave the impression that it was not an international phenomenon. There was no part of the world, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, where Black people lived, where the idea of Black power had not reached. And this was especially the case in Africa, right? Between 1960 and 1975, we had tens of African countries throw off the yoke of colonialism, sometimes in bloody wars, sometimes by peaceful transfers of power. But if you want to live in this moment, you were thinking, 
wow, now I'm seeing black people literally control their own communities because they're, you know, they've got the white people out of their state and they're determining what's best for their nation and for their people. It literally felt like black power was happening every day on an international level. So this combined with desegregation of air travel and the lower cost of traveling meant that many black American women could now go to Africa in ways that they could not before and experience these African-run nations, these African heads of state, these new ways of organizing society firsthand. And they started to realize the ways in which American imperialist interests were caught up in Africa along with Europe. They started to see how their interest in kind of Black women's liberation in a place like Ghana or a place like Tanzania was tied to Black women's liberation here in America. And they started to have more worldly understandings of themselves as Black people and political subjects. Also during this time, we see a proliferation of meetings of Black people across different nation states. So now they're able to go to things like the All African Women's Congress, where they meet Black women from, you know, 10, 15, 20 different African nations, and they can start to see commonalities between one another and the ways in which they're fighting the same types of racism and capitalism and imperialism. So we start to see Black women kind of think of themselves as more global fighters for Black liberation, and so, or what we would call Pan-Africanist, right? Their, their fate in America is tied up with the rest of the African diaspora. And we start to see them organize alongside these women. So what does that look like? That means attending these conferences, like I told you about. Sometimes that means becoming an expat and going and living and working in one of these countries and starting to build the infrastructure, so kind of engaging in Black power that way. And the third one is trying to amplify the fights that are taking place in different African countries in America so that Black people understand their linked fate. So that chapter really explores how Black women think about themselves as international actors and the connections that they make among Black women around the world. In this context, was there an organization or organizations that Black women had to assert themselves in like they did in the others that we mentioned? Yeah, so one of the things about Pan-Africanism, and again, I, I want to emphasize to you that none of this like cultural nationalism, like Black power, came up out of nowhere, right? Black people had always seen themselves as connected to Africa since day one. But there's a couple things that made Pan-Africanism male-dominated in this particular moment. One was that exclusively every African nation state leader that had developed in the post-colonial era was a Black man. And there was always this kind of argument that like Black men were coming to redeem different African countries. And we always call, I don't know if you, anybody's ever picked up on this, we always call things Mother Africa, right? So we've gendered the land, right, as female, right. and the leaders who are recapturing Mother Africa as male, right? Um, so in this kind of Pan-African vision, there was a really limited space for where Black women were. And Black women in America felt that, Black women in Tanzania felt that, Black women in Ghana felt that, Black women in Guinea Basu felt that. And so what they started to do was create their own conferences and organizations and position papers in which they said, you know what, if you're going to think about Pan-Africanism, this linked fate, and Pan-African liberation, meaning liberation of Black people all over the world, it can't be this male-dominated version of it. You have got to understand the way capitalism, imperialism, racism affects Black women specifically. And even more importantly, you got to understand that even though these systems exist all over the world, what racism and sexism looks like in America is not exactly the same as what it looks like in the Black governed Tanzania, but nonetheless, it still exists. And so they really started to link up, like I said, through conferences. We started having or big conferences called things like the Six Pan African Congress. They would put out position papers about the importance of Black women in African liberation and Pan African liberation and call out leaders, both in America and in different African nations, about their inability to incorporate Black women fully in this idea of a new nation, not just as mothers of the nation, not just as the land, but full freedom fighters. And so it really was an extraordinary moment for thinking about Black women's international collaborations that they created. And also there, you know, thinking about the intellectual production, all these resolutions and all these speeches and all of this organizing was reported on in newspapers, was collected in books and circulated around the world. So even if you didn't attend one of these conferences or be able, or you weren't able to go to one of these different countries, you were able to hear 
about how Black women have been thinking about Pan-Africanism more broadly. With what you've learned and put together for your work and looking at the landscape today and the times that we're in, do you see you know, similarities or inspiration from these efforts that Black women made in the past coming up today in some of the movement work of today? I mean, I certainly think that Black women are far more accepted as leaders of organizations, somewhat as thinkers, more so than they used to be. And I do think that there's a much, say, for example, in Black Lives Matter, right? There's a much more um, kind of holistic understanding of Black liberation, that we can't just be liberating one type of Black person but that, you know, an end to all of the oppression that Black people experience means that we've got to account for all the different ways that Black people experience oppression, whether that's, you know, people that are differently abled, whether that's people that are differently gendered, whether that's, you know, people that live in the U.S. or live in South Africa. And I think all of that kind of inclusiveness is a direct legacy of some of the women that I've talked about in my book, you know, and they're pushed to say, it's got to be more expansive. It can't just be one kind of Black male-focused liberation. That said, um, I think that there still is a lot of difficulty in kind of coalition building because Black people are not all the same. So we don't still think of, we don't all have the same idea of which is the best path to liberation. And so we still see, you know, conflicts among activists, just as there were conflicts among activists, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. One of the things that I hope, though, is that activists today have learned how the federal government tries to exploit those conflicts and a little bit more savvy about it than they used to be um, in organizing today. So, you know, I think that they definitely laid the groundwork for a lot of the ways in which we think about Black liberation today, but certainly we still have more work to do. You mentioned this, you just said exploit the conflicts. Can you expand on that so our audience is aware of what you mean by that? Absolutely. So um, the, during the height of the Black Power movement, there was something the federal government run under J, I'm sorry, the FBI, not the entire federal government, the Federal Bureau of Investigation um, run under J. Edgar Hoover called COINTELPRO, which is short for the Counterintelligence Program. The Counterintelligence Program originally began in the 1950s as a way to stamp out communists, but it eventually evolved by the 1960s and 70s to focus almost exclusively um, black organizing groups, right? And I mean them across the political spectrum. So many of us now, for example, know about, you know, the FBI's efforts to try to entrap King, right? Or um, there's highest surveillance of Malcolm. But they were surveilling every group that I talk about in the book. I have obtained a large amount of these records through the Freedom of Information Act. And they did this through several ways, right? They were constantly watching people. They were hiring both black and white um, folks to infiltrate these groups and report back. And they were especially trying to foster discord or hate between groups who might be a different ideologies. So a perfect example of this is they fostered a lot of discord and hate between Milana Karenga's US organization and the Black Panther Party, which actually ended um, in a shootout. But what what the activists didn't know at the time was that these weren't these, when I say foster discord, meaning they might put in an infiltrator who tries to sour the group towards another group, or they might send out flyers and say they're being the Panthers and really it's the FBI, but they all thought that they were doing this against each other. Um, and this was an effort to kind of breed infighting and breed conflict and kind of help the movement implode from the inside. And this, and this was very calculated. It was very careful. It was decades long. Um, and the federal government spent millions upon millions of dollars doing this. Um, and the goal was that they were afraid. They were afraid of the effectiveness of these groups. They were afraid of what happened to Black people said, you know what? This cultural nationalist thing sounds right. This planter thing sounds right. This Pan-African thing sounds right, right? Um, and so um, this is what they did. And so um, when, when I say that I hope that um, activists are thinking about that now, um, just understanding that some of these kind of conversations and organizing can't all happen on social media and can't all happen in the open, not for a lack of transparency, but because, you know, the, the, the federal government is still tracking everybody and, and attempting to dismantle these movements from the inside. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. 
This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. Appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Abney Jones, Brianna Lambeck, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.